Welcome to House Calls, where we talk to investment bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of KeyBank Capital Markets Incorporated. I'm your host, Dave Johnson, the CEO of Foresight Health and the author of The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, Delivering Kinder, Smarter, Affordable Care for All. I also co-author a monthly thought leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers from Kane Brothers. In each piece, we do a deep dive on a fascinating sector of the dynamic healthcare industry. This month, we're exploring America's ongoing opioid addiction problem. Recent CDC data reveals that addiction and overdose deaths actually have worsened during COVID. Given this grim reality, we have focused our attention on advances in opioid addiction treatment that show great promise. Our article's title is Stigma Versus Science, Overcoming Opioid Addiction with Evidence-Based Treatments and Services. My co-author is Erica Hanpa, a director in the firm's M&A practice. Welcome to House Calls, Erica, where the bankers are always in. Thanks, Dave. It's great to be here. Well, let's jump in to this topic. You know, before COVID, most considered opioid addiction, overdose, and death to be America's biggest health crisis. Then COVID arrived, and it was almost as if everyone forgot about opioids. Let's start with the current state of the opioid addiction crisis. With the new CDC numbers, how bad was 2020 in terms of addiction trends and overdose deaths? It's really a problem that has gotten worse over the time frame of COVID. We, we've gotten data from the CDC on overdose deaths through September of last year. And what we've seen is with each month through the pandemic, the year over year increases in overdose deaths to then continuing to grow, right? So when we looked at May, for example, of last year, we had seen an 18% increase in overdose deaths. By the time we got to September, which is the most recent, that 18% turned into 28.8%, which is just incredible. If you look at opioids alone, you're above 36%. And fentanyl, which I will probably get into at some point, is 55% year over year. We've set a new record of LTM overdose deaths every month since the pandemic started. Wow. So much of these increases in addiction deaths link, I'm sure, to isolation, loneliness, and the despair that have arisen from social distancing, lost jobs, and lifestyle shutdown. What other pandemic-related factors have influenced addiction and overdose increases? You touched on some of the key issues that we've all dealt with over the past year. And then when you think about people that have substance use disorder, there have been other challenges that have exacerbated the problem. For example, if you think about border closures and the shutdown, there were significant disruptions in the supply chain. And I'll harken back to some of the stories I've read and heard about from the prohibition and when substances become harder to obtain, they tend to become stronger and more lethal and more toxic in many ways. So we certainly saw that happening. We've seen a decrease in closure of many harm reduction programs, such as needle exchanges, and then there was some disruption in addiction treatment programs, some programs shut down, you know, a number of factors that caused these rates to increase. More demand, more powerful substances, less ability to mitigate really is almost a perfect storm of causes that are pushing up these addiction episodes and, and deaths. Um, you mentioned fentanyl earlier. What is it? And talk about how is it spreading 
Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid, and it is 50 to 100 times more potent than heroin or oxycontin. It is a prescription used in patch form in medical settings, but it's also finding its way more and more into both opioid-related products and non-opioids. So stimulants such as cocaine, methamphetamine, are increasingly being tainted with fentanyl. What other challenges complicate opioid addiction? It's tough. There, there are a number of challenges, I think, that complicate any addiction. The way it impacts one person, what works for one individual may or may not work for another individual. For many of the folks that have been diagnosed with a substance use disorder, you know, about half of them have also been diagnosed with a mental illness, according to data from SAMHSA. Anecdotally, I would not be surprised, I'd say, if that number weren't much higher. We've gone a long way in easing the stigma and getting more and more folks to search out and obtain some form of treatment or counseling for mental health issues. And it seems to me that we're not quite there yet when it comes to addiction. Folks are still hiding that, I would surmise, a bit more than they might other mental health issues. I really admire that you have characterized addiction as a disease and recovery as a process. And I want to shift to our discussion toward treatment here in a second. But just to keep our listeners on track, you mentioned SAMHSA as a data source. Could you just tell us what that is? SAMHSA is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. It's a government organization, and they collect data and fund grants and provide opportunities to treat mental health and substance use disorder issues. So let's discuss the evolution of addiction treatment. If you think back to the 80s, First Lady Nancy Reagan famously advised, just say no to drugs and alcohol. Would were it that easy? Once someone's addicted, it can be very difficult to say no. So explain the dynamics of addiction to our audience and the ways in which new treatment methods are arising to address those dynamics. Yeah, it's funny. I remember growing up in the in the 90s, maybe, with the commercials of someone cracking an egg and saying, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? And frankly, as a kid, I was like, well, a lot of questions. I'd say a lot of the conversation and recent history around addiction hasn't fostered open communication. And Folks have been curious and tried it without having the information of how addictive and what types of impacts these things can have on their lives and livelihoods. We've gone through the more recent legislative battles in and around prescription opioids and the fact that those had been marketed as perhaps being less addictive than they turned out to be. And a problem that had been exponentially smaller decades ago has, has continued to grow at a tremendous pace. We're evolving today, and there's room for greater dialogue and people to seek out different treatment options versus only going to the first one they see or know about or can get into. And there's room for education and communication to help improve outcomes and help reduce the stigma so that folks can seek treatment and move along their path to recovery. That's been one of the failings of the healthcare industry broadly is that it tends to just have one approach and doesn't recognize individual differences. 
Could you just talk to us about the three broad categories of treatments for opioid addictions and, and all addictions, why they're evolving the way they are, and their promise for really providing better solutions to people struggling with this disease? I think when we look to put this into three broad buckets, I would say you have the sobriety-based programs, which include residential services, detoxification, inpatient services, and the like. And there's a wide range of counseling and wraparound services in many of these programs. But the sobriety-based programs are the programs that people go into and they are detoxing and working on their path to recovery. And then the other option, and this one is mostly related to opioid addiction because unfortunately we don't have medications that can be used for every type of addiction, but in opioid addiction, you have medication-assisted treatment, and that is where you have a medication that helps reduce cravings, doesn't produce a high, and helps individuals return to their daily lives. So methadone or buprenorphine, those types of molecules are provided as a part of the treatment to help assist someone on their path to recovery. And then third, it's really a hybrid of the two, where you can have a mixture of sobriety-based inpatient residential program, as well as an outpatient aspect that offers medication-assisted treatment. So what other treatment innovations show promise? One thing that the pandemic... So it's created a lot of hardship. It's created a lot of opportunity as well. Across all of healthcare, really, we've seen the uptick in telehealth for all providers. And we've seen telehealth in, in these situations as an effective tool for group therapy, counseling, and for the MAT programs, prescribers can prescribe Suboxone via telehealth and help someone start their path to recovery via that route. We've seen the relaxing of regulations to allow individuals to have take-home doses of methadone more easily that makes it easier for somebody to comply and continue along treatment isn't necessarily tied to the pandemic, but overall lack of access in rural communities is a problem we've seen mobile clinics where, you know, an RV might drive out to a community one day a week and treat the individuals in that area. That's something I've seen as being done in Colorado. And more states are releasing Medicaid waivers to broaden the scope of services allowed and covered for individuals covered by Medicaid that have substance use disorder well, Eric, as you described, there's enormous amount of positive activity occurring in the sector. It's particularly encouraging that the government is nudging individuals in Medicaid toward newer and, and better treatment alternatives. As demand increases, companies emerge to meet that demand for these new forms of treatment. Which companies do you see as leaders? So I think we're, we're getting to the point where we have a number of Decently sizable regional players across the treatment landscape, and there is significant opportunity for continued expansion across all providers. One of the larger players in the space is Baymark, which does medication-assisted treatment. I think they're in a little more than half of the states in the country, and they've historically provided medication-assisted treatment, outpatient programs, and they're moving into a broader continuum of care and offering services beyond focusing on MAT. Then from there, we have a number of providers that are in, you know, call it 15 to 20 or fewer states. 
And there's opportunity to increase access and scale across the market because once you take a step down from there, you have thousands of subscale regional providers or, you know, one to two site locations and an opportunity to really broaden the continuum of care. And what consolidation can really do in this space is help a provider have much more information on what's working. That type of information really means a lot and goes a long way. And a challenge that we've seen in addiction treatment is that once someone leaves your program, for example, if you're offering only one option along the broader spectrum of care, if they leave your program and do not find success, you may or may not know if they re-enter another program. And when we look at the future, the providers that are offering a full continuum of care take a more holistic approach and help a patient find what will work for them. You're bullish on the sector. I am bullish on the sector. I'm bullish on the fact that the providers we have offering treatment today, they're taking very clinical approaches. They are understanding what's happening, not only from the addiction side of things, but they're looking at the overall health mentally and physically for the patients and helping them find a path to recovery and what will work for them. And what works for one person isn't what necessarily will work for another. That's great. And I think a nice place to land for our interview on that hopeful note. Of course, Erica, I can't let you go without asking you to make a big and bold prediction. So what do you see happening in healthcare and maybe specifically in the addiction sector that others may not? What's your perspective? I think we've come a long way in addiction treatment, and I think we're on the cusp of being more cooperation, payers, providers, stakeholders across the care continuum, if you will. And as more and more folks are are touched by and understand the impacts and the options and really see the opportunity, not only from a business perspective, but the opportunity to get people back to their normal everyday lives and find a path to success. That's good to hear, Erica. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and having this discussion on our article, Stigma Versus Science, Overcoming Opioid Addiction with Evidence-Based Treatment and Services. I encourage our listeners to read the article if you want to learn more about this really important topic. In the meantime, everyone, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep doing what you're doing to make our healthcare system kinder, smarter, and more accessible and affordable for all. Erica, Thank you so much. Thanks, Dave. It was great talking to you.